0: Romans chapter 7. I read several comments on chapter 7 by people who have said this is a tough chapter, it's a, um, it's a low point in the book in the sense that Paul speaks about the effect of sin, the struggle that the believer has with sin. And I got to say that I think it's the high point in the book because not only does victory follow this chapter in chapter 8, but it tells us that, yes, even the great Paul the apostle struggled. To me that's a great comfort, especially after reading chapter 6, and I see the way things ought to be, the way we should live. He talks about positional sanctification, to give a theological term. This is what we are in Christ. This is how God sees us in Jesus Christ, positionally. We're justified, we're sanctified, we're going to be glorified. We'll speak about that in chapter 8. But positional holiness or sanctification is a whole lot different than the way things really are, the practical side. So we know the positional side. We remember the words. We're to know certain things based upon knowing them were to act in faith, reckon them, as he put it in chapter 6, and then from that point we present our bodies to God, present or yield ourselves to him in the face of temptation, and we obey those four words, those four terms, those four experiences of faith. It's a pretty close case. I mean, this is the way it ought to be. There's only one problem. We still struggle with sin. You can have the formulas. You can know what to do. You can say, okay, next time, here goes. I'm going to do this. And we should, but at the same time, we're never going to be absolutely perfect until we reach heaven. We're going to struggle. And what I like about chapter 7 is Paul sort of takes us aside and goes, psst, I want to tell you guys something. As much as chapter 6 is inspired, let me tell you my own personal struggle with temptation and struggle with sin. And he cries out in this chapter, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death. Um, There's a lot of conjecture as to, is this chapter written by a saved person or by an unsaved person? That is, was Paul referring to himself before he came to Christ or after he came to Christ? It's obvious that it's after he came to Christ because nobody has a struggle with sin before they come to Christ. It's when you come to Jesus and you realize, I want to please Him, I want to serve Him, and yet there's this thing in me called the old nature that doesn't want to have anything to do with God. And the flesh wars against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. That's when the struggle begins. And Paul was honest enough to speak about it in the seventh chapter. If you look at verses 1 through 6, that's one section of the chapter. Verses 7 through the end of the chapter is another section. First part deals with the shackles, you might say, the shackles of sin. The second part, the struggle with sin. The shackles of sin is the law. And the first section, he's going to speak to Jewish Christians people who have the background of the law. I speak to those who are under the law, or those that know the law, as Paul the Apostle did. Now there are things we as Gentiles can draw out of this application, but primarily these verses are speaking of those Jews, like Paul, who were at one point shackled by the law. The law did nothing to help them. It served only to condemn them. At the same time, Paul says, it's not all bad. In fact, the law is good because it showed me my need for Jesus Christ. It drove me to Christ. It served its purpose. Then beginning in chapter 7, it's more autobiographical, the struggle that Paul the Apostle had with sin himself. I come to you tonight as a fellow struggler. It's important you hear that because sometimes we think, oh, spiritual leaders, those guys that write books and that are on the radio and pastors, they've sort of attained this level of holiness. You know, I struggle, but they never struggle. Well, I want to knock myself off that pedestal. I think you all know probably I do, but I want to tell you that I struggle just like you do with my old nature, and I have one. Just ask my wife. (laughs) Ask my son. It's one thing to see a person and hear a person from a position of a platform. It's another thing to live with the person. And I am so grateful for Paul the Apostle telling us about his own personal struggle, crying out, asking God for help. I've often wondered what expectations people have when they come into a church. I expect that church to be friendly to me. I expect those ushers to smile every time they see me, to hug me. They ask me how I'm doing to reach into my life, to pray with me, to minister to me. I expect the assistant pastors after the service to be all smiles and be concerned about me and, hey, wait a minute. Everyone struggles. Not everyone is having their best day every day. And I think that we ought to realize that the church is not a museum for saints but a hospital for sinners, and we're all sinners and we all struggle. The sooner we come to grips with that and the sooner we admit that, the better off we'll be. Now that's not an excuse for the usher to slug you or people to shun you when you come up for love or prayer or counseling. But realize that we are imperfect I love the poem that says, To dwell above with those we love will certainly be glory, but to dwell below with those we know, well, that's a different story. (laughs) Don't expect the church of Jesus Christ, present tense, to be like heaven. might be a foretaste of heaven, but sometimes it's a foretaste of something else. So even great Apostle Paul spoke with it. Now, let's say something else as a preface before we get into it. Because we all struggle with the flesh, and we know we do, if there is anyone here tonight who says they don't struggle with the flesh, you are deceived, you are deluded, you are dangerous. And you are a big liar. <laughs> and I can quote chapter and verse on that one. First John, he who says he has no sin is a liar. So if somebody comes up and says, I don't sin, I'll just say, you're a liar and be scripturally within my bounds." Because we struggle, sometimes we get disoriented. You see, we come to Christ, we're excited. We realize the guilt that I realize that I now have is taken away in Christ. But sometimes we think that the guilt that is taken away in Christ also means, that we're never going to struggle anymore with problems and sin and temptation. In reality, you become a target of the devil because you have now defected from his camp. Before he had you on his side, he lied to you, he kept you there. Don't come to Jesus. Get spiritual, get nice, do anything but don't come to Christ. As soon as you say, Lord Jesus, be my Savior, do you think hell, honestly, is going to give you a standing ovation? Oh no, now you're a target. They're after you. We feel disoriented. When you come to grips with the truths of chapter 7, we think, oh, I still struggle with sin. What do I do now? And people do a couple of different things, I've noticed. Number one, they resort to legalism. I'll keep all the laws, all the commandments, I'll do everything good. And. I'll become very critical of people who don't do everything right, everything good, everything perfect, everything lawful. I'm going to uphold holiness. That's what the Pharisees started out to do and you know how they ended up. So we'll go into the camp of legalism and we'll try to do it through the laws. If any of you have come out of a legalistic background, you know what that's like. You're bound, man. Grabbing at straws, you grab for legalism, you find that it's not a straw, it's a bag of cement. It drags you deeper. You can't get out of it. It doesn't help. You feel condemned all the time, frustrated, miserable. While some gravitate toward the law or legal-based Christianity, others say, well, I'll just go it alone. I'll do it myself. I'll go to the do-it-yourself shop of Christianity. I'll kind of set my own standard and rules, pull myself up by my own bootstraps, I can conquer it, I can deal with it, I have more perseverance than most, and you too are very frustrated if that's your idea. In this chapter, Paul talks about both of those camps and finally comes to a place after crying out saying, oh, I thank God, through Jesus Christ there is deliverance, and that leads into chapter 8. But you cannot do it alone. You know, one of the truths of Romans is that there is nothing within ourselves that is of any value to procure our own right standing before God. That's a fancy way of saying what C.S. Lewis simply said. He put it this way, no amount of bad eggs can create a good omelet. So no matter how many things you think are good about you, that you're going to do good, it's still going to end up a bad omelet. You might say, oh, but I'm a good egg. But you produce bad omelets. And Paul came to the truth, I know that in me that is in my flesh there dwells no good eggs, or no good thing, as he puts it here. As we said, the first few verses, for six verses deal with mostly Jewish Christians, or do you not know brethren? For I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Paul spoke to those who grew up under legalism, the Jewish law, the Torah, the regulations of the religious system of Judaism. He was one of them. He was familiar with the law. He tried to keep it. He studied under the famous rabbi Gamaliel. He tried to do everything he could to be blameless outwardly by the law. Steeped in Judaism. Taught the scriptures at his mother's knee. The law had a grip on these people. The law had a grip on Paul the apostle. A lot of Judaism was not only the law of Moses, but it was also their traditions which became to them a law. And I think you'll admit if you've come from a traditional background, a ceremonial type of a background, you believe you were saved if you go to church every Sunday and you do certain things. Tradition has a strong grip on an individual. It's one of the hardest things to break. Even when you come to the knowledge of the truth, you've done things so long that to break out of that mold is difficult. Oh, it just didn't feel right. I see it here. It's in the Word, but I'm used to this way. I'm used to relating to God this way, it's difficult. And you have to understand that for Paul the Apostle, not only being Jewish, not only studying under Gamaliel, going to parochial school as a Jewish person, but being a rabbi, and not only that, but being a radical apologetic rabbi that he would want to kill those who defected from Judaism to Christianity, what an adjustment it was to come to the fact that I am justified purely by my faith as an act of God's grace. What an adjustment. Now, we know that Paul was saved on the Damascus road, preached in Damascus, but went to Arabia for a few years. And then he went back home eventually after Jerusalem to Tarsus and went back to Jerusalem anywhere between 7 to 10, some even think 15 years from his conversion to the time he really began his ministry as an apostle. I imagine they were years of study, years of struggle, and Paul is giving us insight into some of those experiences, thoughts, in this chapter. The law, he said in verse 1, has dominion or rulership over a man as long as he lives. When you die, the law has no more dominion over you. Now today is the 14th of April. What's tomorrow? I know it's the 15th, but tax day, right? Taxes are due. I'm not going to ask a show of hands how many are sent in their taxes or how many will be delayed. But if, God forbid, if you die tonight, you're off the hook. Don't get any thoughts implanted in your head. That's not a solution. But if you die tonight, the IRS will not go to the cemetery and demand payment. You owe us, man. Now that you're dead, you don't have the same relationship. You're dead to the law. You're dead to the dominion of the law. But if you don't die tonight, then they'll be after you. And they'll make you, well, they'll squeeze the life out of you. Either way, you know, they get you. Now, that's the premise. Here's the example. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another even to him who is raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. His point is this. Death brings freedom. Now he's not saying if you're married death brings freedom. You're not shackled to the marriage. His point is that According to the law, the scriptures, the Jewish law, the Old Testament, the only release in the Jewish scriptures from the marriage bond for a woman is if her husband dies. She can't walk out of the marriage and say, you know, I'm tired of you, you don't look the same, Uh, you don't act the same. And frankly, uh, I like somebody else down the road, and I'm going to marry them. You'll be called an adulteress if you do. But if he dies, you have absolute freedom. The application then is, if we have died in Christ positionally, we talked about that last week, we're also dead to the law because Christ died, we died in him, we identified with him in death. The law doesn't have the same relationship to us We have a relationship with God based on love and intimacy, and the relationship he speaks of is of a marriage. Now the scripture uses several great metaphors to describe our relationship to God. There's the sheep-shepherd metaphor. We are God's sheep, he is the shepherd. There's the body of Christ metaphor. We are members of the body of Christ, Christ is the head of his body giving orders. We are children of God. He is our Father. We're children. We're brothers of one another. There's several metaphors that speak of relationship. The most intimate is this one of marriage. And I love that, that intimacy of relationship that God desires. He does not want a legal relationship with you. Okay, God, I've kept all the laws. Do you love me now? He just loves you. There's a relationship. It's not a legal contract. Paul the Apostle says to the Corinthians, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy for I have espoused or betrothed you to one husband, even Christ, that I might present you as a chaste virgin to the Lord Jesus Christ. The intimacy of marriage, that's the the analogy that Paul uses here. Um, I, I don't want to get too far into this because Uh, it's really not dealing with divorce and marriage or remarriage, as some people like to pull it out. It's simply an analogy of our relationship to the law. Just as a woman, if she has a husband that's dead, she has freedom to remarry. So we're dead in Christ, we are married to another, even Jesus Christ. But I do want to say a couple things, because some people have read this and and have said, boy, you know, look at, women really had it bad back then. You know, it's, it's very monolithic. It's speaking only to the woman who's bound to her husband in that patriarchal society. It was so abusive. In Jesus Christ, everyone is liberated. Every woman is liberated. Every man is liberated. Every child is liberated. There's not male, there's not female, there's not the distinctions. We're all one in Jesus Christ. It was true in those days a husband could divorce his wife, a wife could never divorce her husband, and there was dispute as to how a man could divorce his wife. There was a couple different rabbinical spins on Deuteronomy 24, and uh, it was as liberal as a husband saying, you didn't make breakfast right. I find some uncleanness in you. There was too much pepper in the eggs, honey, thank you. And uh, here's a writing or a certificate of divorce. If she was presented with that, he could divorce his wife and marry another. That's not biblical, but it was traditional. It became part of the oral law in some cases. A woman could never divorce her husband. So women did have it bad back then. The New Testament has a completely different standard. Now, I just want to touch on this because I'll probably get questions about it. In the New Testament... There are reasons given for divorce. The one that Jesus gave is immorality, sexual immorality. Porneo was the word that he used. Any illicit sexual relationship joining intercourse between a spouse and somebody else, not their spouse, while in a marriage, be it an affair that is homosexual, heterosexual, whatever. That pornea, that sexual immorality, is the sole cause, Jesus said, for someone to divorce. Now, Paul expands upon that in the Corinthian letter and says, Now, if you are a believer, and you're not married to another believer, but you're married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever wants to stay with you, stay with the unbeliever. Don't divorce Don't say, well, now I'm married to an unbeliever and I have an unequal yoke, and I know it's God's will that I have an equal yoke, not an unequal yoke, and uh, besides, there's a really cute girl who's a believer and, you know, you can justify anything. And Paul, anticipating that, said, if the unbeliever wants to stay, stay, don't depart. But if the unbeliever departs, let them depart, God has called you to peace giving the freedom then for that believer to remarry. The other instance I would say is that if you were divorced as an unsaved person, an unbeliever, you come to Christ after the fact. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away, all things become new. It's different standard for an unbeliever than a believer. You say, you mean it's harder as a Christian? Look at it this way. God calls the Christian to the highest standard because you're his child now. doesn't expect perfection. He does expect obedience. But really, this is not the issue that it's dealing with. It's dealing with your relationship to the law. Therefore, my brethren, here's the application, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God." Again, this is to the Jew, not the Gentile. What is the relationship of the Gentile to the law? Well, remember, that was the big discussion back in Acts chapter 15. There was a council in Jerusalem. And some of the Jewish believers said, okay, if we're allowing Gentiles to come and live within the fellowship of the God of Israel. We have to demand that they be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And Peter stood up and said, How can you put a yoke on the Gentiles that neither we the Jews nor our forefathers were ever able to bear? We didn't keep it all. They didn't keep it all. And now you're going to tell Gentiles they have to keep it all? That's bogus. Well, he didn't really use the word bogus in Acts, but this is my little paraphrase. And so they adopted sort of the rules and regulations of the first council, the theological council of Jerusalem, tell them to abstain from meat sacrifice to idols, from blood, and from sexual immorality. We don't want to offend the Jewish people, and we want to keep ourselves pure. Tell them those are the, really the, the main regulations. If you do these, you do well. So you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, not by your works but we don't want to give offense to the Jewish people. Stay pure, he was saying to them. So this is for the Jewish people mainly. But this is for all of us at the end of verse 4, that we should bear fruit to God. It's God's desire that you be a fruitful person. Now, fruit is a metaphor of a productive Christian, one who is growing, one who is moving, one who has something to offer other people in terms of growth and refreshment. Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit is taken away. But every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it might bring forth more fruit. And this is my Father is glorified that you bring forth much fruit. So we know the will of God for you is that you be fruitful. We know how you become fruitful by abiding in Jesus Christ, that's his point here. We have a new relationship with God based upon the work of Jesus, not the law, so we abide in Jesus. How do you know if you're abiding in Jesus? Well, one, you're bearing forth fruit. You see production. What's fruit? Fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy, longsuffering, goodness, kindness, gentleness. You see those things in your life? a hunger to know him, a hunger to share him. Another evidence that you're abiding in Christ is that you get pruned. Think of your trials that way next time. Why am I going through this? So you'll get better. He prunes you. What about when you prune your, I've been pruning my trees in my yard this spring. What if they could talk? What if the branches I'm about to cut off or or the tree itself could talk and I'm about to approach it with some shears, what would it say? What are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm going to cut you. Why? You don't love me? How can an owner of love allow this to happen to his tree? Well, I want you to grow a little taller. These are unsightly branches. We need to get the sap, the nourishment up to the rest of them so it will grow taller, bigger, stronger. The roots will go down. So you can know that you're in Christ because of the struggles, the trials, as we spoke about last week, the storms. So God wants you to bear forth fruit. Remember Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 13, the great parable of the sower and the seed. Behold, the sower went out to sow some seed. Some seed fell upon the soil that was a path. The birds immediately plucked it away. Some of the seed fell upon soil that was shallow and it sprung forth immediately. But when the sun came up, it withered away. Other seed fell upon the soil that was choked up by the seeds, and other seed fell on good, productive, rich, dark soil that brought forth fruit, some thirty, some sixty, some a hundredfold. Now he gave the analogy. And he said this represents different kinds of hearts who listen to the Word of God. Some people When they hear the Word of God, immediately the enemy snatches the Word away. They listen with hostility. Every time they hear the God, oh, that Christian stuff, I don't want to hear, oh, they get all angry. What's happening? Satan takes the seed as soon as it's sown, doesn't even get to penetrate. Others listen to the Word of God emotionally, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm going to try it, yeah, it's for me. They get all excited about it and they jump up and down and spring forth. And then the trials of life hit them and you don't see them anymore. Their roots didn't go down deep enough. Then there are those who listen, but their lives are crowded with the cares of this world. Pursuit of their own kingdoms, pursuit and pleasures of other things. They get choked up. So the word of God is in competition with their other desires. You know, God is sort of, well, when I got time, I'll get to him. Others hear the Word of God, it penetrates the heart, they seize it, they want to obey it, and they're productive. And different people produce fruit at different rates, some thirty-fold, it's better than nothing. It's growing. Some sixty, some a hundred. Now some of you are really productive. You're just looking for ways to serve, looking for ways to get the gospel out. You're just... Like Joseph, the fruit went over the wall, it says in Genesis. At the same time, as fruitful as you are, you're a pain to be around. (laughs) Not all of you, but some become a little prideful and legalistic and start putting their nose up at the people who aren't bearing forth the hundredfold fruit like they are. Look at them, they're only bearing forth thirtyfold fruit. they should get busy like i am you know what you once only bore 30fold fruit you were once completely unfruitful and then by god's grace 30fold and then a little more 60fold and now perhaps even a hundredfold just there you go as god gave you a break and was patient with you give them a break be patient with other believers You're not the gospel gestapo. God didn't call any of us to be that. You're not called to be a sin sniffer. That's my ministry. I have the gift of sin sniffing. Be careful of a critical spirit. Once a person has a critical spirit, it's hard to turn that off. Once a person has a critical spirit, I see what's wrong with every other system but mine. I see what's wrong with every other believer but me. That person can find fault with absolutely everything and everyone, and they are a pain to be around. Those involved in the law, in legalism, become like that. They they pervert the meaning of the law. It's one of Paul's undergirding truths. They looked at the law as a way to become righteous before God. I've kept the Sabbath. I've kept the ceremonies. I've done all the commandments. Therefore I am righteous. Paul believed he was blameless at one time outwardly. In this chapter he says, you know what? I discovered a great truth. The law is not an outward reality. It's spiritual, not physical. It deals with the attitudes more than the actions. So. To pervert the law and say I can become righteous by the law is wrong. Paul said in Galatians, Verily, if righteousness could come by the law, then Christ died in vain. If you can get right before God because you become a good little boy and a good little girl and keep all the little laws, Jesus didn't need to die for you. You can be good on your own. Because Jesus died, it proves no one can be good on their own. There's none righteous. No, not one. For when we were in the flesh, that is the Greek word sarx. It doesn't mean in your fleshly body, in your skin. You're still in that. It means when you were dominated by the old nature completely, an unregenerate person living solely by the dictates of the flesh, the appetites of the flesh governed by it. When we were in the flesh, the passions of sins which were aroused by the law were at work in our members' to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. People who are legalistic serve by the code book. I read ten chapters today. How many did you read? I didn't read any. God still loves me. (gasps) Oh, I don't know about that. God would love you more if you read at least five chapters. How long did you pray today? I prayed an hour. Oh, well, I should pray more, but I woke up late. I really want to pray more. I I try, and uh, perhaps tonight, oh, God loves me more. You know that God desires not a legal contract with you, but a loving relationship. It's just like in a marriage. I had a friend, well, I had an acquaintance. She was a nurse, worked in the emergency room back in Westminster Community Hospital where I worked. She fell head over heels with this doctor. Doctor asked her to marry her after a month of their knowing each other, and she was so excited and she said, there's only one thing. He wants me to, to sign this thing called the prenuptial agreement, an agreement that states, you know, if something happens I get all the loot, I get all the dough and, you know, you go your merry way. It's a, it was a, a document, an agreement, a, a covenant based upon works, not total commitment. I said, I wouldn't sign it. Love never fails. If he loves you, he'll love you forever. You don't have to sign a prenuptial agreement. What he's saying is let's prepare for divorce so that I get everything when we do divorce. Let's pay alimony in advance for me. That's a relationship doomed for failure. And a relationship to God based on any legalism is doomed for failure. We should serve, at the end of verse 6, in the newness or freshness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, there is a fundamental problem with the law. It was not given to make anybody righteous. It was given to reveal sin. Remember that. The law was revelatory, not salvatory. It revealed the weakness of man. It revealed the problems we had. God accepted Israel, not because they kept the commandments. Blood had to be shed to show that they were sinners and needed atonement for their sins, even even in the covenant of the law. The law revealed sin. The problem, though, was not with the law. It was with mankind. You see, when they were at Mount Sinai, and they looked up at that big mountain, and the Bible says fire was consuming the top of the mountain and lightning and thunder. It was a dark cloud and God was speaking and it scared them. And so they said, uh, Moses, you go up. And I don't know if they really loved their leader. They said that to him, but they said, he said, you, know, you go up and, and find out what God wants for us and you come and tell us everything God says and we'll do everything God wants us to. When God heard that, he said, My people have spoken well, but oh, that they had the heart within them to be able to do it. I, I, I love their heart. I love their desire, their wishes, that they, they just want to obey me. That's a great, great sentiment. But they lack the capacity. They don't have the heart within them to do it. And this law won't do it for them. It's important because when we get to the thirty-first chapter of Jeremiah, a new covenant is predicted. Behold, I make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel, not like the former covenant when I took them out of Egypt, spoke my law to them, which they never kept. But he said, I will write my law on their, or put their law in their, my law in their minds and write it on the tablets of their heart. Something that is internal, not external. So the problem was with man, not with the law. Now we get very autobiographical here into Paul's life. What shall we say then, is the law sin? Now Paul, you're speaking very disparaging against the Jewish law. If that's the case, does that mean the law is wrong, it's evil, it's sinful? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, you don't have to count them up right now, but in the next, in chapter 7, forty-seven times the word I, me, my, myself is used. That's why he cries out, oh, wretched man that I am. Because when you try to do it in your own flesh, by yourself, something I can do, that's where you end up. You contrast that to the next chapter where it's very God-heavy instead of I-heavy, man-heavy, and there is the victory. He comes to that realization in these chapters. I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness unless the law said you shall not covet. We've given you this analogy before. The law was like a mirror. When you look in the mirror, we usually have mirrors so that we can see if we're presentable. Before you came here tonight, I bet every one of you looked in a mirror. Some of you even looked in your mirror as you were driving. I I was driving the other day. And, well, she almost got in a wreck. She was driving in front of me, and the whole time she wasn't looking in the rearview mirror to see what's in her rearview mirror, like cars on a road, it's lipstick and makeup, and she's got a whole makeup kit on the seat and she's putting different stuff on and hairspray. It's all, it's a bathroom. (laughs) It's a mobile, 50 mile an hour bathroom. I'm thinking, something's wrong with this picture. But we're so conscious about ourselves, we want to be presentable, we use mirrors for that purpose. Now, I'm not trying to get down on women. In fact, uh, There was an experiment done in California where mirrors were put in public buildings to see how much time people would spend looking at themselves. Men looked at themselves more in the public places by far than women did. And um, the women are starting to clap, so maybe I should just move on. Now that I've offended both sexes here, the law is a mirror. The law reveals you need help. Now, the law does not have the capacity to clean you. It reveals your need. Just like a mirror doesn't clean you, you don't take the mirror off the wall and start rubbing yourself with a mirror, it doesn't clean you. Because the mirror doesn't clean you, it doesn't mean it's a defective mirror, it's a bad mirror. It's a good mirror. It has done its job. The law can't save you. It doesn't mean the law is bad, the law has a purpose. The law says, you shall not covet. Uh Uh-oh, I've done that. The law says a lot of things, and when you read it, you go, "Uh uh-oh, I have broke that one. So it reveals our own heart. Let's say you're doing 80 miles an hour. Suddenly you come upon a sign that says 50 miles an hour. You probably think, "Uh uh-oh, I'm disobeying the law. I hope you think that. You slow down. Now, I say I'm struggling as well as you are, and that's one of the areas I struggle with is, is when I drive. And usually the policeman says, uh-oh, you get a ticket. What is important to recognize in that verse is the commandment, of all the commandments he could have picked out, was which one? You shall not what? Covet. Now, this is getting to the heart of what Paul's speaking about. The law is not external. It's also meant to govern the internal attitudes, not just to keep my actions okay. It's not just to keep me from killing someone in action, but from hating them in my heart. It's not just from keeping me from stealing something that doesn't belong to me, but covetousness, wanting something I don't have, going out of my way to get what I don't have. That's an internal attitude. Paul dealt with covetousness because suddenly he's reading the law one day. It seems he goes, hmm, covet. How do you covet? You can just think and covet. You don't have to do anything outwardly. You can be all inward and you can break this command. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So he's realizing that the law is spiritual, not just outward. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount in so many words. You've heard it said by those of old, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. You've heard that it was said by those of old, if you commit adultery, that you've broken the law. If you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. The law was meant to govern the inward attitudes, not just the outward action. You shall not covenant, uh, covenant, you shall not covet is something that I think America needs to take a good, long look at because if there's one sin Americans have, it's covetousness. We are never satisfied. We have more than any other nation on planet Earth, and we still grumble, we still complain, we still don't have enough. That's why it's good for us to get out from time to time if we can and visit other cultures. Visit your brothers and sisters in parts of the world where they have nothing and they're filled with joy. And you realize that the problem of having too much breeds this attitude of covetousness. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now, we don't know exactly what period of time in Paul's life he's speaking about. It is thought that this happened after his conversion on the Damascus Road. He preaches in Damascus. He's on fire for the Lord, but he did spend time alone in the desert of Arabia, probably mulling over the scriptures. And during that time, he realized... I still have this sin nature. I read the commandment, and all it does is arouse in me desires that the law says don't do. Example, if I say right now do not think about purple elephants, you're thinking about it. The law arouses certain desires, certain sinful desires, and it cooperates with the law of sin in the flesh. The commandment, verse 10, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. The law does what it's supposed to do. It's revelatory, not salvatory. It reveals my need. It doesn't take away my sin. It's good. It's holy. What did Paul say in Galatians? The law is a tutor, a schoolmaster, speaking of the job of a a slave in a wealthy Jewish home whose job it was to teach, to educate, and to lead a child into adulthood, pointing the way after he reaches a certain age, the tutor says, you're on your own, man. Go to school. I've taught you at home. Now go to the classroom. My school work is done. I'm the tutor. I finished my work. The law was a tutor. It set out certain parameters of what is right and what is wrong, but it couldn't save us. It pointed to Christ. You read the law and you go, I have a great need. I'm a great sinner. And the law says, Look, there's a great Savior. And once it's done its job, you don't need the tutor any longer. It's holy, it's just, it's good. But verse 10 is key the commandment which I was to bring life, which I thought to bring life, I found to bring death. One of the innate problems with the system of Judaism is dealing with the sin issue. There is no temple. There are no sacrifices. Uh, After the crucifixion of Christ, the veil of the temple was rent. They sewed it back up, but the temple was destroyed shortly after. There have not been sacrifices on that place for years, so if you're Jewish. If you want to keep the law, what do you do about your sin? The law demanded blood be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So if you don't trust Christ, you are in your sin. So every year at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they have a special time of reflection. And you reflect on your misdeeds, and you are to reflect on your good deeds, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. That will be pleasing before God. Now where is that written in the law? It's not. It's written in their tradition because they've got to do something if they reject the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, but they have no sacrificial temple. doesn't bring life. It produces death. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good... So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now there was a time when Paul the Apostle believed that he was righteous before God based upon his works. He wrote to the Philippians and he said, If... There are those people who want to boast and be confident in the flesh. I could boast and be even more confident. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, of the stock of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrew, concerning the law, Pharisee, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Listen to this. Concerning righteousness, which comes from the law, I was blameless perfect. I kept every commandment I knew to keep. I didn't do all the bad stuff I knew I shouldn't do. Everything God said to do, I kept. I was blameless outwardly. But I've just discovered something. The law isn't just outward, it's spiritual. It deals with attitudes like thou shalt not covet. It's spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. Sin, I have this flesh nature still within me. It's battling. The flesh, Galatians says, battles or wars against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. They're contrary to one another so that you cannot do the things that you would. So, sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. It brought me to a realization of God's righteous requirements and how far I have fallen short of them. The problem was not with the law. The problem was with me. I'm carnal. For what I am doing, I don't understand. For what I want to do, I will to do, that I do not practice. What I hate, I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. Man, I know that I should live that way. That's the standard I want to keep. I agree with it. But I just don't do it. I want to do it. I try to do it, but I fail. But now it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin, the sin principle, the old nature that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Beware of any system that has you look to the law for your justification, for your right standing before God. It's doomed for failure. Do you keep the Sabbath? When do you worship? I worship on Saturday night or Sunday morning or Wednesday night or kinship. You worship on Sunday? we are supposed to worship on Saturday, keep the Sabbath. If you worship on Sunday you're keeping the mark of the beast. But, but I worship God, I love God. Doesn't matter. You've got to worship on this day. How are you baptized? Well, um, in a swimming pool. Oh, oh, God forbid, a swimming pool. It has to be by one of our holy elders and one of our holy jacuzzis. <laughs> you have to be backwards or forward or sideways or sprinkle or whatever. So if you want to be right with God, you have to be baptized in our group. But I've already been baptized by four other groups who said that. Oh, I know, but they're all wrong, we're right. It's not only that kind of movement that is legalistic. I believe the faith movement is very legalistic. It's doomed for failure. If you only had enough faith, brother, you wouldn't have this sickness. You'd be healed. Now, I don't know, why, why do I always do a southern accent? Well, if you look geographically where most of of those faith ministries are based, you see why. But the idea is that if you could muster enough faith and you lived a better life, then God would do this for you, so you must come up with the performance. That's legalism based, doomed for failure. Also any system that causes you to look within is doomed for failure. Look to yourself. The answer is within. You know what's within? Crud is within. (laughs) And it's humorous that all these new age philosophies are saying, Look within. Oh, please. I don't want to look within. (laughs) Look around and be distressed. Look within and be distressed. Look to Jesus, be at rest. You look to yourself, oh man. Paul said, I looked at myself and there's nothing in there that's any good in my flesh that would please God. And that's why be careful not to look to yourself too often. Oh, but I failed God. Well, look to him. Robert Murray McShane used to say for every one look that we look at ourselves with, we should look 10 times at Christ. You look at yourself, boy you're going to walk away miserable look to him be clothed in him i know that in me there there dwells no good thing <laughs> the will is present with me but how to perform that which is good i do not find for the good that i will to do i do not do the evil that i will not to do that is i don't want to do the evil i know that thing that is in front of me is wrong that i practice have you ever experienced this struggle Okay, Lord, today's going to be different. I'm going to serve you. I'm never going to do that wrong thing. I know that's wrong. I know I finally have victory, and then, oh, Lord, I blew it. To be disappointed with yourself. Have you ever been disappointed with yourself? Okay, now listen carefully. To be disappointed with yourself means only that you have trusted in yourself. God knows the truth about you. God knows that you're dust, the Bible says. He didn't expect a whole lot of greatness out of dirt. <laughs> and that's where the Spirit of God comes in to remake you. When you come to the end of yourself and you go, Oh, wretched man that I am, I need deliverance. I need in this sanctification process, I, I have a will, but I need power to let that will come into fruition to serve God. I need the power of the Holy Spirit controlling my life, that abandonment. To be disappointed with yourself means you've trusted in yourself. Verse 18, verse 15, all these verses speak of that Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde problem we all have. The new nature combined with the old nature, the flesh, the wars against the spirit. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you guys, couldn't you watch even an hour with me? Yeah, Lord, I'll pray. No problem. Jesus said, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's the problem, the flesh. Now, if I do, verse 20. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. You know, only the Christian has a struggle. You have to be born again to have this fight. Before you're a Christian, you just did everything the devil wanted you to do. There was no problem. You do what you felt like. All of a sudden, you become a believer, and, or when you become a believer, you're born again. You have a new nature. You're awakened. You have a hunger for the Word. You want to serve the Lord. But you say, there's other things that are pulling at me. That flesh nature, as much as I don't want, I, they're repulsive to me you've created habits, patterns of behavior. You're born again, you have new life, but it's almost like you're, you've got a dead carcass chained to you, wherever you go. Now it's a real problem if you try to take that dead carcass, the old Jew, and reform it. Don't worry, I'm going to fix this carcass up, it's going to look good. I'm going to make you keep laws, sit up, come on. Paul says there's only one edict for the flesh, kill it, death. You can't conform it, you can't help it, you die to it. And how do you die to it? We saw last week, you know, you reckon, you yield, you obey, you become alive in the Spirit. You occupy your mind with the things of the Spirit. And by God's Holy Spirit, we're allowed to do that. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my member, warning against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Paul said that. That sounds like somebody on death row. Paul the apostle said that. There was a period of Paul's life where he was apart from Christ, he was legalistic, he was blameless according to the outward external righteousness of the law. Sin revived. Sometime probably in Arabia after his conversion he realized, I still have a sin nature. I struggle. And he tried by his law, his legalism, his discipline, his training himself to get out of it. And he said, oh, I give up. I can't fix this thing. I still have those proclivities toward evil that are I, I know are not pleasing to God. Oh, wretched man that I am. Here's, here's, here's hope. Who will deliver me? Now he's introduced to the turnaround. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. By the way, when he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, the original word speaks of exhaustion. Wretched speaks of wretchedness due to exhaustion. I've tried everything I can to reform this flesh. I can't do it. The old you, pardon the expression, is like a pig. You can dress the pig in Ralph Lauren, designer clothes, put a little bow tie on it, spray a little Tommy Hilfiger cologne on it, get that pig smelling really good, clean it up, even teach it a few tricks, a few moves, suave kind of a pig moving in. (laughs) But it's still a pig. It's, no matter what you do, it's still a rotten old pig. And just give it a chance to be in its own environment, And it'll go back to the slop, back to the mud. So, I thank God through Jesus Christ. I have the desire to serve God. I realize the sin nature is in me. What do I do? What do I do? Well, that's chapter 8. We'll have to wait for it next week. But we should really close with verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's where you ought to rest tonight because that's where Paul rested after his struggle with the flesh, exhaustion. A lot of us hate New Year's because though we should love it, it's a brand new start, we realize I'm going to make this resolution and I'm going to keep it in January struggle with it in February, and throw it out the window in March, <laughs> and then start again next year. And Paul had tried that so often and it's, he's thrown up his SOS. I've tried to be good by legal means, I've tried to be good by my own self, I'm exhausted. exhausted. What do I do? Christ will have to deliver me. He'll have to work his righteousness not only in me positionally but in me practically as well by setting my things on the mind, on the things of the Spirit, having the mind of the Spirit recreated in Christ. We'll talk about that next week. But allow me to close with one of my favorite tiny little poems. I love it. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly and then gives me wings. The law says, do this and live. Well, I did it part of the time. Does that count? Nope, you die. It doesn't give you the ability to do it. It gives you the commands. It shows you that you're guilty. It's to drive you to Christ. You hear the gospel. It's a better word than the law. It says, fly. Here's wings. Here's the capacity through the indwelling Holy Spirit.